Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The seminary where I received my training for ministry has a wonderful field education staff. In my first year of seminary, I started exploring internship options for my second year. The woman who ran the field education office became quite a touchstone for me. I must have been in her office every other week with some question or another. My first idea about doing an internship was that I should go work in a more conservative church to force myself to deal with what I feared the real world after seminary would be like. Thankfully, Susan gently offered valuable wisdom and steered me into a learning environment that was more supportive for me. I thought the world of Susan. The year I started my internship, Susan's three-year-old daughter, Erin, was diagnosed with a malignant tumor on her brainstem. How does a three-year-old get cancer? It isn't fair. The answer is that stuff happens. It is true that stuff happens without rhyme or reason. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. Tragedy strikes and impacts people without regard for how good or bad they have been. And while many people want an answer or an explanation that feels better than the simple truth that stuff happens, there are real problems with the other answers people have come up with. Last week I talked about prayer. I can still remember the prayers I prayed for Erin, that three-year-old daughter of someone I looked up to and cared about. I still remember turning to God and saying, what kind of useless, good-for-nothing God are you anyway? Sometimes our prayers might sound like that when bad things happen to good people. Now, I didn't really believe that, didn't really believe that God was useless or good for nothing. The prayer itself was a mark of my relationship with God, a relationship that had me turning to God and talking to God in the midst of witnessing another's pain and in the midst of my own questions and anger. The prayer was an honest expression of my gut-level feelings. And it reflects the kind of thinking about God We hear so often from people trying to reconcile a certain understanding of God with the most difficult realities we face in life. That's what the question is about. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or we might just as well ask, why isn't life fair? It's a question that comes from trying to reconcile a certain understanding of God with the most difficult realities people face in life. We humans have opinions about the kind of God God ought to be. We want a God who operates in certain ways. More than once I've read an article online in the wake of some tragedy, and I've been fascinated by the implied theologies revealed in what people say in the comment section. Over and over I read things like, If there was a loving God, this would not have happened. Or comments like, My sister got cancer, and that's when I stopped believing in God. The unspoken thinking behind this kind of comment is this. 
God should operate in a particular way. I have decided what that particular way is. If God does not operate in the way I've decided a God ought to operate, then there must not be a God. Asking why bad things happen to good people or why God doesn't run the world differently comes from some of our own human longings. We really want life to be fair. Sometimes we believe that life should be fair. And the corollary to that is that we want a God who makes things fair. It can be hard to reconcile our images of God or our beliefs with the real tragedies that happen in our world and with the obvious truth that life is not fair. This desire for God to operate in a particular way, the deep desire for God to make things fair, can lead to theologies which are very different from my theology. My best guess, knowing that human thinking about God always involves guessing, my best guess is that God is simply our name for the ineffable sacred, which we cannot begin to understand, much less quantify. But without being quantifiable or explainable, the Holy One nevertheless stirs our pulses enlivens our spirits, and captivates our imaginations. When we see that life is not fair, our desire for things to be fair, or our desire for a God who makes life fair, is not satisfied. And we often turn to another human urge, the desire to make sense of things. We want things to make sense. We don't want to believe that events are random or senseless. And wanting things to make sense comes from another human urge. The desire to make the discomfort of not knowing go away. We don't like being left without an explanation that makes sense. We see things happen that break our hearts. We see things happen that should not happen. Tragedy strikes. Innocent lives are lost. Good people suffer terribly, and we wish it were different. When we ask why, it suggests that if we knew the answer, we would feel better. Some branches of Christian theology have come up with some answers in an effort to feel better. Some people say that everyone gets what they deserve, and if something bad happens, it is punishment for sin, even if the sin isn't apparent to us. Some people even say that we can be punished for another person's sin. Usually this comes out in the idea that children might be punished for their parents' sin. I don't believe any of that. Some people say that God has a plan, and that every single thing that happens is part of God's plan. We can't understand God's plan, but there is a plan. I don't believe that either. The least offensive but still problematic explanation we hear from some corners of Christendom offers some combination of free will and science as an explanation for why bad things happen. From the perspective of free will, God permits humans to make the choices we make, even when those choices hurt somebody else. From the perspective of science, God is the author of the laws of nature, 
And just as plate tectonics form the glorious beauty of mountains, plate tectonics also cause earthquakes which claim innocent lives. Just as genetic mutations allow organisms to adapt to a changing environment, genetic mutations also cause cancer. The problem with this explanation is that it still assumes that God was quite intentional in setting up the system the way it is. Setting up a system of free will, setting up a natural world shaped by plate tectonics and genetic mutations, which ultimately still leaves us wondering why such a God couldn't have done a better job when designing the system. So while I do believe that humans have free will and that God is the author of creation, I don't see God as a designer who would design a pretty good but fatally flawed system. Any more than I believe that God decides who gets cancer or decides when you will trip over your shoelace. I don't believe these things. I can only assume that for some people, a flawed answer is better than no answer. But for me, the flaws are too insurmountable. Those answers are worse than no answer. My problem with these theologies isn't just that they are answers that I cannot subscribe to. More than that, it is the fact that these so-called answers can lead people to hate God. These so-called answers can be a direct cause of someone losing their faith, giving up on God entirely. Like the woman who said that her sister got cancer, and so she stopped believing in God. I suspect that someone told her that God protects those who are faithful or has a master plan for the world. If you believe those things, then when God fails to protect your faithful loved one, or when things happen that you cannot reconcile with a godly plan, it is easy to lose faith. There have been so many harmful messages communicated in the name of Christian theology. People in the depth of grief have really been told that their loved one's death was God's will. And those messages do harm. They're often well-intentioned, but they do harm. So those of us who offer an alternative theology can be excused for sometimes focusing on what we do not believe, having heard what some believe. But we have to do more than say what we don't believe. We need to know what we do believe. Let's turn to our scripture for the day. We are always making guesses about God, guesses about God's nature and actions. In the face of a God who is beyond human understanding, we make our best guesses about what this God is like. And the biblical authors are as human as you and I, and they too were making their best guesses about what God is like. We give the Bible a unique authority because the Christian community has decided to give the Bible a unique authority. We give the Bible a unique authority because it has stood the test of time and because we draw on a rich history and tradition of interpretation and application that helps confirm the Bible's importance. But our spiritual ancestors who wrote the Bible were as limited by their human understandings as we are today. They were also as likely as you and I to have flashes of insight into the mysteries of the sacred. We heard this morning from the prophet Hosea. 
As I see it, the writer here imagines how God might think about, feel about, and talk about God's people when they turn away from God. The passage suggests that God will punish people for turning away. But then we hear God's voice as if questioning God's own options, God's own course of action. How can I give you up, O people? My heart recoils at the thought. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my anger, for I am God and no mortal. It seems to say that while mortals indeed may be subject to anger and the desire to hand out punishment, God is above that. So I especially love that line, for I am God and no mortal. God's voice continues. I am the Holy One in your midst. God is compassionate. Above the currency of punishment and reward that we humans imagine, but ever-present in our midst. There's a passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. This is a true statement. It is also relevant to today's question, because we know that things happen to the just and the unjust. But more than that, the context for Jesus' statement is a wider discussion of the law. Jesus challenges his listeners to go beyond the idea of an eye for an eye. Jesus reminds us of the commandment to love our neighbor. And then Jesus expands the commandment to love, instructing us to love our enemy. As Christians, we see Jesus as a reflection of God. And how can a God who would teach us to love enemies, a God who would teach us to overcome the urge to uh, enact an eye for an eye, how could this God be a God who punishes people for their sins? It is like Hosea says, if mere mortals can be called to love our enemies, surely God can do far better. Our best guess, our best theological understanding of God's nature tells us that the things that happen in life do not happen as a result of God's decision to punish people. You know what? Stuff happens. It just does. We know that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We know that life is not fair. We know that people get better than they deserve and worse than they deserve. So if ultimately the answer to the question why bad things happen to good people is simply that stuff happens, then where does that leave God? If God doesn't make every specific event happen, good or bad, or intentionally allow every event to happen, and if God doesn't stop bad things from happening, what does God do? Surely, God suffers alongside us. We know this from seeing how God is revealed through Jesus as one who suffers with us. God experiences heartbreak. God loves and embraces and walks with us. And while feeling God's love and God's presence does not remove our suffering, it can help us navigate suffering and heal from suffering. I am grateful for God's presence in the midst of suffering.
Amen.